Real people, real conversations over coffee. This is Meet Me for Coffee. I'm Anthony Davies, Associate Professor of Economics at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh and the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. Are you a Pittsburgh Penguins fan? You know, you have to be. Otherwise, they kick you out of the city. <laughs> you know, I think Mario Lemieux is one of the best hockey players to ever live. If not, the best besides Gordy Howe. Do you follow hockey closely at all? I don't. I don't follow sports at all other than to be able to to say, yes, go Steelers, this kind of thing, you know? Well, it's really easy. I'm embarrassed to admit that. It's easy to get on the bandwagon if your team's doing really well. Up here right. in uh, the Toronto area, our Raptors – you know, made it to the championships. All of a sudden, um, everybody's a fan. Everybody wants a ticket. And the people who have been cheering for them the whole time, you know, we can't get a ticket to save our lives. Yeah. So, right. um, but you do follow money and you do talk about money and economies. So let's talk about the housing market after this recession or whatever we're going through now with COVID-19. How do you predict the housing market to be? Well, that's a good question. Um, the housing market, clearly, like every other market, is is going to take a hit. Um, had COVID-19 occurred at a different point in the calendar year, it would have been worse. In a lot of ways, um, occurring in first quarter, beginning of second quarter, is probably the ideal uh, point for something like this to go on. Because most, most housing, and this applies to other markets as well, most of the activity is going to start picking up around April, May, June. Okay. Uh, what about the way the government's spending the money? If a government puts $100 billion into the system, what happens? Are things going to be more expensive after this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um there's lots of moving parts. So the easy way to do this is to say, look, if everything else stays the same and the government just injects a bunch of money into the economy, and when I say inject, I mean by what we would call printing. So the, the central bank just issues new more currency and, and, and that's how the government that's the money the government spends. If that's the case, what you get is inflation. And People seem to understand this at an intuitive level, but I'm not sure they understand why. And the answer why is because the thing that gives a a dollar value is the fact that someone will give you goods and services for it, that I can walk into a bar and put it on the bar and somebody gives me a beer. It's that fact that someone will give me a beer that makes the dollar valuable. When you print more dollars, you increase the number of of dollars, but you haven't changed the number of goods and services. So in, in a sense, what you've done, it's like, it's like spreading the same amount of butter over a larger piece of bread. You've taken the value, the same value of, the, of all the goods and services and spread them over a larger number of dollar bills. So each dollar bill ends up being worth less than it did before. That's what we call inflation. Wow. You know, it's very unpredictable, but a lot of people have a bit of a foresight or they can foreshadow what's going to happen. Now, when people talk about saving, saving their money, how do you save your money properly to advance yourself, especially in a time like this? Like, how do you survive a time like this if you don't save any money? What's the most proper way to do that? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, right? Because you really need a financial analyst to say something there. Uh, in general, um, 
saving if if the question is can i protect myself against inflation the answer is if your savings is in some interest bearing account where the interest is flexible then as as inflation comes along the interest rate will rise naturally and that will help to offset the the losses due to inflation the the real problem here occurs when you have your money in some fixed interest account or alternatively when the inflation is unexpected because when inflation is unexpected and, and this is the covid uh, virus is a good example of this uh, nobody anticipated back in january that uh, i'll talk in terms of the united states that the federal reserve was going to print several trillion dollars so the government can spend all this money and so as it happened this was unexpected because it's unexpected nobody had built that the inflationary pressure from that into their interest rates and so you kind of get caught off guard and the getting caught off guard helps some people hurts others it hurts savers because you know i'm locked did i put my savings in this account that's paying 3% interest figuring inflation would be 1% and it's not inflation is now 5% now i got a problem on the other hand it benefits uh, borrowers you know i've got a 30 year mortgage i'm paying 5% and i'm paying 5% interest because i figured okay there's 2% inflation um but now all of a sudden the inflation's 10% well what happens is i'm paying back dollars that are worth less than the dollars i borrowed that's a benefit to me so all right let's talk about you know borrowing money um obviously people a lot of people in debt right now worried about paying their bills. If this economy does not pick up after this, which most likely it will, but most of the people will actually be out of work because maybe their company shut down. How do you see this panning out? The thing to keep in mind here is that this isn't a recession in the way that we normally have recessions. In fact, I heard the best characterization of it the other day. Someone referred to it as the great suppression. Because that's what really what it is. It's not that the economy slowed down. It's that the government stepped in and stopped it. So all the things all of the things that we have that produce things we've got businesses we've got workers we've got technological and capital infrastructure all of those things are still there waiting to go right back to bit right back to work as they were before all that needs to happen is for the government to say okay you can go back to work and everything will pick up immediately now the problem is the longer we wait for that to happen the less the chance that those jobs will still be waiting for us because you know the longer we wait businesses are going to start to go to close to permanently to go bankrupt uh and those jobs won't be there so the sooner we can get back to normal the 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 more quickly we'll be able to recover and i don't know what's happening in canada but in the us the cdc just released a plan to start opening up the economy beginning in may 1 If that happens, my guess is by September, October 1, we'll be looking back on this as a bad dream that things will largely be back to normal. I hope so because I'd like to travel back to Los Angeles at some point. You know, yeah. the one time I got invited to come out and I actually was in the process of buying a ticket, you know, my wedding was scheduled this year as well. We pushed it off because oh no, all yeah. these fears, but I I think it'll be actually fine. 
um, by September. But, you know, what does it take to boost an economy, to get it back to where it was, or if not better? And has Trump done a good job with the economy? The problem here is an, an economy, we, we use the term economy as if it's this thing. And it's not. An economy is the set of literally billions of relationships amongst billions of human beings. It's, it's far too complex for any politician or group of politicians and bureaucrats to be able to manage. And, and so when you ask, well, what is the thing that, that the government could do to get things moving again? The better question is, what could the government stop doing that's preventing things from moving? And, and the answer there is um, cut back on unnecessary regulations, cut back on complex taxes. These are things that slow businesses down. It, it occupies um, the business owner with having to deal with jumping through legislative bureaucratic hoops rather than offering, producing and offering the product that he produces. The, the, the more we can get government out of the way, and I don't mean entirely because government does some very good and important things, but to the extent that we can get the unnecessary things out of the way, that will help people involved in the economy to do better the things that they do. All right. Um, which global trends will shape the world economy in the next 10 years? Whoa, that's a good question. Um, I suspect one of the big factors that's going to shape, it's going, it's going to shape the United States economy and by extension, it's going to impact the rest of the world as well is the imminent demise of our social security system. Our social security system, according to the social security board of trustees itself is slated to go bankrupt in about 10 to 15 years from now. Um, that, that's going to change the face of how we do business in the U.S. And it's going, by consequence, going to affect other countries as well. So that's one item, um, kind of on the bad news side. On the good news side, we're, we've seen over the past decade tremendous strides in, um, in 3D printing. As this becomes more mainstream and more technologically advanced, we're going to start to move into an economy in which we no longer buy things, for example, from Amazon. Instead, we download the plans for them and print the thing. So I need a new computer, or maybe wow. computer's too complex, but you know, I need something. I need new pots and pans. And so I download the plans for it and hit print, and there they are. Unreal. Unreal. Yeah. I never thought of that. That That's awesome. I, I'll have to look that up. What about devaluing the money? Like, how does the, how does that help an economy? Devaluing the money is, is a fancy way of basically saying inflation. We're going to print a bunch of money and the, the thing's going to inflate. And people will say things like devaluing the currency is, is good for the economy or is bad for the economy. And the fact is it's like, inf well, it is inflation. It's like inflation in that it's good for some people. It's bad for others. So um, if China devalues its currency, the Chinese currency now has less purchasing power. That's bad for American exporters because now it's harder for the Chinese consumers to buy American products, but it's great for American importers 
because the U.S. dollar now is more valuable. So there, there's no answer that it's good or it's bad for the economy. It's good for some people. It's bad for other people. Can another country devalue another country's money in their own country? Um, the, I guess the, sh- the short answer is, well, that's a good question. I, I know the answer. Let, let me say it this way. Strictly speaking, you don't devalue another country's currency because when we use the term, what we mean is that the government is going to print a bunch of money and the money now becomes less valuable. So in that sense, the answer is no. However, the value of a currency is always relative to something else. So if if I'm the United States and I, the opposite of devalue is revalue. I, I revalue the dollar. I cut back on my printing. The value of the dollar goes up relative to the dollar. The Chinese currency has now become less valuable. So you get almost the same effect as if we had devalued the Chinese currency, except you didn't. What you did was revalue the American currency. Do you think China will be an economic power in 2025 and five years from now? Oh, yeah. China's already an economic power. And here's the thing about that. People get bent out of shape. They say, oh, my God, China's going to going to exceed us as have a larger economy, this sort of thing, as if the world economy were a race and China's going to get ahead of us. That's the wrong image. The world economy isn't a race. It's a rowboat. And we're all in there with oars. And as China's economy becomes stronger, it means that China can row faster and harder. And that's good for all of us because we're all in the same rowboat. Now, a little side note here, China's economy on a dollar basis, so add up all of the goods and services they produce, is on par even now with the United States economy. But on a per capita basis, it's much, much smaller. Because, you know, picture, we've got two economies roughly the same size, but in the U.S., that economy is being generated by 320 million people. In China, that same size economy is being generated by over a billion people. How does the World Bank work? Obviously, you know, a lot of the countries taking money from the World Bank. Who gives the World Bank the money? Do they just print it? Or how does this work? Huh, that's why do you ask that? This isn't my field, but my son asked me that exact question today. So, mm-hmm. so I, I would encourage your listeners to, to go Google it just to make sure that what I'm about to tell you is correct. My understanding is, uh, is World Bank undertakes, its primary goal is to undertake projects of alleviating poverty. So it, it will deal with things that involve you know, aid, aid to the poor. IMF, the International Monetary Fund, is more what you're describing. It's an entity that, that enables borrowing and lending between countries. Okay. So I, IMF would be to countries as your local bank is to you and your neighbors. This is so interesting. You know, there's a lot of questions I could ask you. And you know, sometimes it, we step outside the, the boundaries, but you have your own podcast. It's called Words yes. and Numbers. And uh, definitely uh, anybody who wants to listen to a new podcast and wants to actually be interested in what people are talking about, which is very hard to keep, keep people interested, especially me, because my mind races at 100 miles per hour. Uh, your podcast is actually very easy to listen to. And it's awesome because you guys with your partner actually have great conversations, intellectual conversations. So 
What made you want to start a podcast? That's a good question. Well, I started years ago doing uh, videos and I contacted the, uh, the Foundation for Economic Education and said, hey, I want to do some more videos. And they said, no, you don't want to do videos. You want to do a podcast. It has much better reach. It's a lower cost thing to produce. So my colleague, James Harrigan, who's a political science scientist, he and I got together and we decided to do this thing just to try it out. And, um, and we found a lot of people just came out of the woodwork and started listening to it and saying, yeah, we, we like this. It sounds, you talk, we talk about stuff that's going on in the world, current events, but we try to do it from a reasonable perspective. So it's not, it's not a left thing. It's not a right thing. It's just a reasonable thinking human being thing. What about being stuck in your house? I heard that little conversation earlier today on your podcast, you know, being on quarantine, what, four weeks now or five weeks now. Yeah. How's that feel? I'm loving it. I'm, I'm a horrible introvert and I would much rather just sit at my computer desk all day long, which I have been doing. The downside is that the rest of my family is in the house as well. So, so I have to deal with them. Right. But as far as I'm concerned, my life hasn't changed that much. James and I go and give lectures at high schools across the country um, throughout the school year. And that came to an abrupt halt, of course, with, with coronavirus. But other than that, my life actually hasn't changed that much. What do you guys talk about? Did this to the we do. We, we have a, a one-day program. It's about four hours. And we talk to, to juniors and seniors, high school students. Um, we have a program that does economics and government. So we start off by talking about the knowledge problem, which I alluded to earlier, that politicians simply don't have enough information to be able to guide the economy. James does it from a government perspective. I do it from an economic perspective. Then we talk about rights, and James does it from a government perspective. I do it from an economics perspective. Wow. You know what? You're blowing me away every time I talk. I ask you a question. Some of your favorite books or what book are you reading right now that you'd recommend to uh, a listener? I would recommend, and we just, I just got a sad email today from the author of this book because we wanted to have him on the podcast. Uh, It's a series of books by Ken Follett, uh, Pillars of the Earth. And then the second one is World Without End. And then there's a third one I've never, I haven't read yet, but uh, I can't recall what that is, but it's historical fiction set in medieval England. And what, what I love about this, Follett is an excellent writer to begin with, but what I love about it is he has a tremendous amount of really good economic lessons throughout the book. And they're woven in such a subtle way that you, you don't know that he's teaching you economics, but he ends up teaching a tremendous amount of really good economics here. Are we teaching young children enough about economics going forward in their lives? That's a good question. I mean, you know, as an economist, my, my knee jerk is to always say, no, we, we always need to teach more. But I, I think I think our problem isn't at the child level. Children tend to have an intuitive grasp for economics and justice that adults seem to lose, right? The larger problem isn't the children. The larger problem is when you get to older high school, college age, and even people out of college, and it's not teaching them economics, it's unteaching them things they have come to believe that are wrong. What do you so, like about so economics? What do you like about economics? What do I like about it? I yeah. like that it's You must it's be passionate of, about it if you, you, you want to teach it, right? So Yeah. Be, 
Because properly understood, economics is not about money. It's not about profit. It's about human beings. It's about human behavior. How do humans deal? How do humans with unlimited desires deal with the fact that we can't have everything we want? We have limited means. And human beings come up with really creative ways of of, of of balancing that tension of I want everything but I can't have it and that studying how humans behave in that situation is economics that's perfectly put Anthony thank you for coming on the show there's one question though how do you take your coffee uh, oh you I don't drink, drink tea <laughs> how do you drink I take tea? my I take my tea with cream, and that's it. I used to take it with cream and honey, but given that I sit at my computer all day long and don't exercise, I had to cut out the honey or exercise, right? And exercise is off the table, so it's no honey. Well, for those who are listening right now, I'm actually doing a video Zoom chat with Anthony, and uh, I can see this awesome mug that says Words and Numbers, his podcast behind him. Check that podcast out. And uh, be sure to subscribe and uh, drop him a line. You know, he seems like a pretty straightforward guy and he's a very well-spoken guy as well. I appreciate it, Anthony. George, thank you.